Now, our series has been, over the last several weeks, walking with God in the wilderness. Been taking that from a book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, which the entire book takes place in the wilderness. There's all sorts of you know, shows nowadays that deal with surviving a wilderness. There's semi-reality shows, I guess, but it's one thing, it's one thing to talk about like a physical wilderness. It's another thing spiritually when you're in the wilderness. And that, that's where we've been looking at. Like, how, how will we spiritually survive when we find ourselves in a wilderness? I really want to take a couple different paths. I feel like God has taught me a lot through studying this book of the Bible, the fourth book, uh, Numbers. I've never studied it as deeply as I have, obviously, for this series. So I feel like God's taught me a lot. I want to kind of share and kind of encapsulate some of those ideas. And then also look at one more story in the book of Numbers that I think will put uh, lots of things together today. You know, if I could share some of the lessons that I've learned by spending a bunch of time in a book that's not super familiar to me. Uh, The book of Numbers, and really this time where we've looked at the wilderness, I've learned this, that God may seem distant to us in the wilderness, but he's always present. So, I mean, I say wilderness, and what I mean by that, it's a very tough place for our faith at times, where we feel abandoned and neglected, bewildered. We can easily begin to wonder if we are on our own or if God is really paying attention to us. And so there's times where God seems distant. He seems like he's not close by and we just feel like we are alone. But then I've been reminded again and again in the book of Numbers that we are people called by his name. He, he, he knows where we are. He hasn't lost us. He's not forgotten, forgotten us. We and Numbers talks about the people coming together at the tent of meeting where they would meet with the Lord. But then I've been reminded we have more than just a tent that we set up occasionally. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us so that we would know we are not alone. So while God may seem distant to us in the wilderness, we are not alone. He is always present. We have a priest, not just an earthly priest, but we have a great high priest who is always making intercession for us, reconciling us to God. How God-centered is your life? God may seem distant, but can I just encourage you, and maybe this time in Numbers has reminded us that while God may seem distant in the wilderness, He is always present. We talked for a few weeks in this series about defining moments and how defining moments work in our lives. Particularly, there was a defining moment in Numbers 13 and 14. And, and what I've come to the conclusion is that our defining moments in the wilderness have to be met with humility and hope. So these defining moments that actually change a lot, they change us, they change people around us, they change our future, these have to be met. And, and we looked at the Israelites, I mean, they had their defining moment where they got right to the edge of the promised land that God had, God had promised over and over again that he would give them. And then remember, they kind of shrunk back in, in disbelief, but our defining moments can't be met with disbelief, they've got to be met with humility and hope. Why do I use those two words? Why humility and hope? 
Because there are times when I think I'm better than I am. I think I'm stronger than I am. There's times when we feel like maybe even life has made you be pretty self-sufficient. You had to, you had to be self-sufficient. You had to deliver. You had to take care of yourself. Maybe in that time you feel so strong, but there you are in the wilderness in a defining moment. And actually, you might think you're stronger spiritually than you really are. And scripture would say, to the one who thinks they stand, they better take, they better take heed. They better be careful because they could fall. We approach a defining moment that may impact lots of, lots of things downstream with humility, but we also approach those with hope. So it'd be easy to swing like into self-sufficiency and also to think, you know, my goodness, I'm, I'm so flawed and I'm so imperfect. Or, Curtis, my defining moment is not one that I've chosen. It's been chosen for me. I've, I'm living in the consequence of someone else's decision has impacted the next 10 years of my life. And I'm, I'm tempted to just give up. And I would say, that's why you need hope in the midst of despair so that you don't give in, so that you recognize God can make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. You can be sure that God knows what's best for you. So in our defining moments in the wilderness, which undoubtedly we're going to have, I've learned we must meet those with humility and with hope. And then finally, our trust in God. I've been learning that our trust in God is the fuel for a long obedience in the same direction, especially in the wilderness. A long obedience. See, I, I want it to be easy. And yet, I, I want it to be kind of instantaneous, but so much of life is, is a trajectory. It's, it's a long time of walking with the Lord, and I need to see this bigger picture. I need to trust. I need to trust in God, because that's what's going to fuel. When I, Otherwise, I'm going to resort to complaining. I need to trust that God is God. I need to trust that God is good. I need to trust that God will provide. They needed to trust that God would provide food and water. And and I need to trust that he'll provide for me, that he'll protect me. I need to be careful about the story that unfolds in my mind. We we talked about this a few weeks, but sometimes I can write a false story, uh, an actual a story of fiction, not of reality, because I can invent in my mind all kinds of scenarios in which God really doesn't care for me and God really doesn't show himself to be faithful and there really isn't any good purpose for my suffering and I really don't matter anyway and I can begin to write that story and it becomes believable to me and so I need God to take the pen out of my hand and say, you're not writing this story. I'm faithful and I'm good and I'll bring you all the way through. My hope for us as a church family is that we live in this long obedience. Not just that we have like nice gatherings on Sunday. I love these. And not just that we have a great year together as Ogletown. Although I I hope 2016 is fantastic for us. My hope is that through receiving new mercies each morning and receiving daily bread each day, that one day we will meet our Lord and we'll be gathered around his throne will say, the one who started a good work in us, he completed it, didn't he? He finished it. He finished it. We're here. Likely, as you've read through numbers and as you've been tracking with what we've been talking about, 
you could add many more lessons to what I just shared. There's actually so many interesting stories and places we could go in Numbers, but I I do want to close our time in this book, in Numbers chapter 21. There's a very interesting story, and, and some of this story is going to sound very familiar in some ways, and then in other ways it's going to sound very new, some new elements to us. Um, Numbers chapter 21, I want to read the story, and then we'll dig into it. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. From Mount Hord, the, the people of God, the Israelites, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, no water. And we loathe this worthless food, which would be the manna that they were being fed. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Would you pray? Would you pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us? So Moses did pray for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he'd look at the bronze serpent and he would live. This story, which is, what, six verses long, could easily have been, I mean, it's an obscure story. So easily in the Old Testament when you're trying to compete with stories like Noah and Adam and Eve and Jonah and David and Goliath, easily this one could be forgotten. But Jesus will refer to this story. In one of the most important chapters, that they're all important, one of the most is John chapter 3. Jesus will go back to this very story. And we'll look at that later, but I want us to look right now at Numbers 21. You know, we looked at verse 4 and 5, and the complaining is somewhat normal, so we're not used to, by this time, if you've been with us, we're not used to Israelites complaining. So while we're not not surprised by that, this complaint is unusually intense. It's kind of full strength here. And the driver, according to verse 4 of Numbers 21, the driver is impatience. And so let's just acknowledge we can do a lot of dumb things in our life because of impatience, because we're just tired of it, because we've waited long enough, because we're going to just take matters into our own hands. I don't know how many bad decisions have their root at We just don't feel like waiting anymore. And that is the people. They are impatient. Actually, verse 4 says they became impatient on the way. If you take that literally, it would say they became impatient because of the way. So they're having to go on this great detour, and they're tired of it, and they're frustrated, and they're impatient. How selective their memory is. They're going on this long detour because they wouldn't go in when God gave them the promised land. It's, it's interesting. It's a vicious cycle. Sometimes we get impatient because we're living in the aftermath of our own poor decisions. And then it frustrates us and we get more impatient. And that's exactly what's going on here. They speak against God in verse 5 and they speak against Moses. And this is another level I feel like that we've seen before in the book of Numbers. 
So in speaking against God, they say, you brought us out here and you're killing us. So there is this slow death that they feel like they're dying. And they hold God responsible. And, and the wording is intense as well. I mean, they say, we don't have any water and food. That's, that's, that's normal. But then they say, the food we do have, we're so sick of it. We loathe this worthless food, they say. Have you ever had those moments where something is so frustrating, it has so worn you down, you're so tired of it, that kind of the filter comes off? This is never a good moment, is it? It's rarely a good moment. The filter comes off and you just kind of, you express how irritated you are with it. That's exactly what they do. They don't hold back. And they let the complaining, you want, you want to know what we're tired of? We're tired of this. This is not one of those stories where, like, there's a, a giggle a minute. It's in verse 6, it, it gets horrific. The Lord sends these fiery serpents, and the, the people are bitten, and many die. Let's not read this first and think parable first. So it's a parable of something bad happening. Let's not think that first. Let's first think, like, there were, there were husbands that lost their wives here because of this incident. Let's make sure we understand this great I am that we've sung, this powerful God that we've sung about, who demons run and flee. This is a powerful God. And so before we kind of make illustrations and see the symbolism, I think we should feel the, the brutal impact of death here. This is, this is real. This is not a metaphor. People are dying and the threat is around. Maybe it'll help us to, to think back just a few months ago when the uh, Ebola virus was uh, sweeping across Africa and there was... Everywhere you looked, I mean, we're, we're an ocean away and there is concern about what's going on there and how it could spread. And, and there's something about that when, like, when it gets real and people are dying, there's something that rattles us. And, and currently you can even see that with the, the Zika virus where we recognize this is just uncomfortable and, and this is deadly and this is problematic and what are we going to do? This was real. But yet, Scripture's not merely for us to kind of watch a movie going by. It's actually, it's actually for us to hold up to our lives as a mirror. So if we only look at this and go, that's a fascinating story about how people did what they shouldn't do, and we don't hold it up to a mirror and go, well, what about us? Then we've actually under, undershot the benefit of Scripture this morning. You see, as we read Numbers 21, what we should come to the conclusion as, yes, it was real, and it's an illustration of something much more, and that much more is that sin is always fatal. Sin is always fatal. It's 100% fatal. It always kills things. I don't say that. God says that. Sin, when it is finished, brings death. Sometimes it's a silent killer, and sometimes it's a long-term killer. It's grieving is to talk to, talk to probably, I can think of five people in the last month who, are, who meet me at the end of a service and say, could you pray for, and they, they tell me the name of a friend or a relative, and that person is just blowing up their lives with an addiction. And they're not just blowing up their lives, they're blowing up everybody's life around them, and, and you just watch this person who is dying on the inside, and there you're reminded... I don't have to wonder. Sin always brings about death. And we, we, play, we play with it. We don't 
think it does. We, we feel like we can be kind of harsh people because that's just how we grew up. We're just harsh and, and we treat people that way. And then over time, that steadily deadens a bunch of relationships in our lives. Or we feel like it's just a, just a little thing of cheating. It's just something minor. It's a little moral compromise. And we don't realize we're playing with fire. And we don't realize that sin, when it is finished, always destroys. We feel like we can handle a little bit of, you know, hey, I like the nicer things. A little bit of materialism, a little bit of greed, a little bit of lust, a little bit of anger, a little bit of selfishness. And then that guilt begins to take hold because it always does, right? Sin always has a, always has a bill that comes due and we start to feel the guilt. And then we've, we become fearful. Relationships are destroyed because, indeed, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. You want to know the paycheck for sin? Well, we see it here in Numbers. There's so much of that complaining and the sinfulness of Israel that kind of culminates in Numbers 21. Once again, this isn't a movie to watch. It's a mirror to hold up. And so a question I might ask us today is do we really feel the sting of sin? Do we really see it? When's the last time? When's the last time we've, we, we really did feel it? You know, it isn't that hard nowadays. We've got a whole vocabulary to avoid even saying the word sin. It's, it's actually not that hard for me to, to talk to a nice group like you are and say, you know, well, we've all made some poor decisions and some mistakes and some, we've had some momentary lapses of judgment. We've got all these different words and euphemisms because it's so hard to face this head on. But it's hard to ignore sin when it's destroying your life. It's hard, or, or the lives around you, it's hard to kind of just convince yourself, you know what, I think I'm evolving into a better person. This story has a way of taking the blinders off because they really couldn't stop the impact of their sin. I mean, they could have said, well, hey, I think I'm a pretty good person, but those serpents were still coming and they couldn't stop them. And it's hopeless and it's scary and there's uncertainty. So what do they do in verse 7? The people come to Moses and they just flat out acknowledge, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord. We've spoken against you. There's times when you're correcting somebody, maybe you're correcting a child, or if you're a teacher, you're correcting a student, and, and you realize, like, this is, this is a big deal to you, but they're not quite getting that. Have you ever had that moment? Like, they're not quite getting this. This is a serious deal, and for some reason, it seems not quite as serious in their mind as you want it to be. Yeah, in verse 7, that's not what's going on. It is clearly a, a serious thing. They make a confession. They say, we have sinned. And they, they start naming the specifics, don't they? We've sinned against... There's a vertical dimension. We've sinned against God. And they, they say to Moses, we've sinned against you. Can I ask a question? And it's a question I'm asking of, of all of us. When is the last time there has been that clear of a confession of sin in your life? No minimization of it. No rationalization no, well, you know, hey, I ended up in a tough situation and a person has to do what a person has to do. 
Yeah, I'd like to do better next. When, has, when is that last time? Where you've seen your sin exactly like they saw it. And, and it just, it comes out where you, you feel it that deeply. Do, it might be worth asking, do you ever feel it that deeply? Do you ever see yourself before God, before God and say, what have I done? And those things, those, those moments of pride where you just really felt like you were so much better than that person. And then God just lays his hand right on that and says, what about that? Or that, that lust that you've, you've excused repeatedly and thought, you know, I, I kind of think whatever I want to. It is 2016. You know, what, what, what's a person going to do? When's the last time that you felt grief like they did over their sin? When's the last time you lost it in anger? And you said, my God, what have I done? What have I done? God, I have sinned. I have sinned. Or when's the last time you've been deceitful and God saw and God knew nothing's hidden before him and you felt that in your heart and you could not rationalize it. You could not move. You couldn't even take the spotlight. And some of those times when God is just kind of focusing in on you, you just want to say, can we just focus in on someone else? Because it's very uncomfortable to be in God's spotlight. But when is the last time where you just humbled your heart and you said, Lord, forgive me. See, as a church, I mean, we have got to recognize it isn't a matter of us getting really good at confessing everybody's sins out there. Oh, that's cheap, and we can all do that. You know, we live in a bad place and all kinds of wickedness out there. And when's the last time where we bowed our head and said, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. This is not right. Nothing about my attitude pleases you. Nothing about what I did last night pleases you. It's rare to read this kind of blunt confession. But I I always remind myself of this in Proverbs 28. Whoever covers his sin doesn't prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes sin finds mercy. They're helpless. And so they go to God and they say, actually they tell Moses, could you pray to God and take it away? Interesting, I mean, they're not trying to find some serum or vaccine. There's no alternative drug, some antiretroviral that maybe can just help this. Or, I mean, they're not looking for you know, pest control to help. I mean, this is beyond their ability to stop the consequences of their actions. And so they go to God and they say, we need help. So Moses prays, God hears, and there's this simple unexpected direction. It's kind of a, a national emergency, but, but what, a, what an odd solution to this. So God, in verse 8 and verse 9, we read earlier, God gives them the solution. This is, how, this is what must go down. He says, Moses, make a serpent. Take that serpent, put it on a pole. And then all who look at that, even if they're bit, they're going to live. It's interesting, even that's a medical symbol nowadays where uh, uh, a snake on a, on a pole. And so there's all sorts of symbolism. What, what, what are, what's going on with the symbolism? Because it's a very odd direction. I'm sure there is much more. Uh, there are lots of other ideas, other health initiatives that could be started. But God says do it this way. What is God up to? There's symbolism with the, with the serpent. I mean, there is exactly the representation of, of the punishment of the mess that they caused. 
And so God says, let's take that and let's lift that up. So publicly, it's going to provoke some sort of confrontation. Someone's going to be walking by and they're going to have to look up and see a public confrontation of the punishment, the consequences of what what they had done. They're going to have to look. They're going to see the ugly reminder. This is what sin does. Not going to be able to kind of worm their way around that. This is what sin does. And they're going to look up at that. And that's, that's going to heal them. It's going to move from something very general to very personal. And then they'll have life. There's so much symbolism in this story. It's a heavy story. It's heavy to the point of this. God uses what we initially experience as punishment and disaster and often he will turn it into our salvation. God takes what we experience as just disaster and turns it into our salvation. Jesus took this story, this one of all stories, he took this story and he brought it into his teaching. And by doing so, it's almost as if he's saying, you want to know what the heart of Christianity is all about? I love this because he connects the Old and the New Testaments. He's bringing these things together and he's saying, there's one God and there's one plan and it all is about God's provision for us when we sin. And, and in John 3, it's, it's an interesting story. Because in John 3, Jesus encounters someone who is trying to think through what religion is all about. And, and so when I think about When I think about Nicodemus who came to Jesus in John 3, I have to wonder, there might be those in this room who you're trying to sort through lots of things in your mind. I mean, here you are, maybe you're thinking through religious things and spiritual things, and and you're you're trying to ask a lot of questions. You want to know what's true. You want to know what's right. You don't want your life to be a wreck. You're interested in God, and you're not sure about all these things, and maybe you are a lot like Nicodemus. You're not the first to come with lots of questions like, what's it all about? I'm I'm positive you won't be the last. So Jesus has a conversation with the man asking a lot of serious questions about like, what is life really about? And then in John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus says these words. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, meaning himself, Jesus, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And some of you are very familiar with John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world on a mission of condemnation, right? No. In order that the world would be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe, they're condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. These are the words of Jesus. And I don't know, maybe you regularly listen to the words of Jesus and maybe you don't, but today can I ask you, can I, can I beg you to listen carefully to the words of Jesus because what the big picture of the Bible is all about is embedded in those words of Jesus. He gives us this point of reference, right? Just like Moses lifted up the serpent, I must be lifted. Jesus is taking this story where we've already seen some symbolism, but he's applying it to himself. What is he saying? Jesus is saying even at his time, there is this recognition 
of what the serpent represents. This, the serpent represents all the sin that plagues the people. Jesus knows, in fact, what we all know, and that is this world is, is messed up. And, and it, it'd be maybe somewhat comforting if we'd say, yeah, all the world out there is messed up, but inside I'm okay. But we know in our own heart we have, we have thoughts and we have attitudes and we have actions that are, are totally wrong. Jesus says there is a, a world that we all live in And he would say that world is condemned already. He would say that world's default setting is one of perishing. That's the world we're born into. The world is in need of a rescue. That's why Jesus said, just as the Moses lifted up a serpent. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And we, we talk about like lifting up Jesus at church. And a lot of times we mean that to mean like let's lift him up in our praises. And that's, that's totally right. When John says it in John 3 and John 12, what he means when, when Jesus is lifted up, it means he's on a cross. The Son of Man must be lifted up, not just by the praises of his people, but he's lifted up on a cross And when that cross is lifted up, it puts in full view, this is what sin does. It'd be easy, it'd be easy for me to dismiss, you know, a sin is, you know, it's it's some mistakes, you know, it's misjudgments, it's it's really not that big of a deal, it's stuff other people do that kind of mess up my life, that I'm a victim of. But Jesus goes to the cross, and clearly on that picture of the cross, we're seeing what God does with evil. We're reminded. Curtis Hill is reminded your sin is that bad. And there it is in front of everybody to see. There it is, that public. Not glossed over. At the same moment, because of what I'm reading in John 3, 15 and 16, I recognize while that's horrendous, while Jesus on the cross, while that's awful picture, it's also a picture of love. I mean, this wasn't an accident that Jesus ended up on the cross. God sent his son to this world. God loved the world and sent his son to go to that cross. So it's a picture of of love. God moving toward us. The son of man, Jesus, lifted up on the pole as part of our rescue, God's loving design. Salvation is available. Jesus comes into this world, this snake-bit world, and he pictures himself as that serpent hanging there, reminding us of the consequences of our sin. It's a moving picture. It's hard to think about that, someone doing that, and not be moved by that. But still, what does that mean for you? And so that's wonderful that Jesus did that. But what does that mean for you? See, it has to get personal. Our inclination, I know what our inclination is. I know what my inclination is. Is I want to look at what Jesus did and say, man, that's, that's amazing. And now I better start living right. I better start doing some things. And, and I'm tempted in my pride to find a way in which I can contribute. You know, God did his part and now I'm going to do my part. 
And so I think, what can I do? Can I say some prayers if I say the right prayers, if I try to come to church a little bit more, especially this season? This is holy season. Maybe if you come here a little bit more during that, more points are are accrued. Maybe you could be a better person. Maybe you could stop doing so many things that are wrong. Or maybe it's just one wrong thing that you do over and over again. And if you stop that, or maybe you could start doing lots of things right. I mean, what are you going to do to add to Jesus on the cross? Or maybe there's something internally we need to do, be more enlightened and more open-minded and more disciplined. And this is where this picture becomes so critical. Because actually God wasn't interested in soliciting remedies from the people. Like, what are you going to do to make yourself better? What are you going to do to make yourself better? He actually gives one remedy and he says, you've got to look. You've got to look. This is where the picture becomes clear. It's a matter of faith. The people of Israel couldn't heal themselves and they couldn't work off their punishment, but they could look. That's that's what John is saying, right? The looking in numbers becomes the believing in John 3. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ won't perish. Whoever believes that he's the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a gift of God. Those are the people that have life. Imagine. I mean, I was just even thinking about this this morning. I don't know what that must have felt like even in someone's body when they had a death sentence because of the, because of the bite of the serpent. And then they look and immediately the death sentence is over. But then again, I, I know how that feels. Because I had a death sentence on my life. Because of my own sin. And I looked to Christ on the cross. I looked outside of myself. I didn't try to earn his favor. I received what he did for me. And I look at that and instantly curse. There's no, no curse that's going to be held against me. No condemnation that I'm going to have to live in. This is the promise of life. And what we see in Numbers and what we see in John is really amazing. Because I love I love in both places, in Numbers 21, it really was whoever looked, everyone who looked, was going to be healed. No one was bit too badly. Yeah, you, you probably have gone too far. The venom's too deep. And your life is lost. And then you come to John 3. Whoever believes in him. That's a pretty staggering invitation of grace, isn't it? If you believe in him, you don't perish. Anyone, whoever. And what I have asked God to do is like, could you just sit that down on us today where like... Someone in this room realizes maybe for the first time, this isn't just for like church people. This is for me. I'm the whoever. I'm the one who can believe today. And God can do something incredibly new in my life. If you're not sure that you've been truly saved through Jesus. It's like the one who that bronze snake pointed to is present here saying, believe in me and you can live. You can turn your eyes to the cross and ask him to forgive 
your sin. I, I don't know what would stop you. I don't know what would make us think we could earn anything that would compare to God's gracious gift. When I think about sin much, I'm tempted. I'm tempted like begin writing out some sort of action plan to do a little bit better. You know, maybe I work on this. Maybe I can make some progress here. And today, actually, I want to close this, the message with actually not an appeal for you to do anything, but for you to look at something. For some of you, it may be the first look. For some of you, it may be the millionth look. But I want you to look at the cross by faith and say, Because I'm looking at Jesus, sin's curse is gone for me. And I can live in life. And I can share that life with others. And I can tell them of the hope of knowing I once was snakebit. But I now live and will live eternally. Not because I did anything, but because who I look to. Can I ask you to bow your head? Maybe that you need to call out to the Lord and say, you know, maybe the truth is you just don't know exactly what to say to God who's holy. Maybe there's some language even in Numbers 21. We've, we've sinned, I've sinned. And in a moment in your heart, you confess and you say, Lord, I want to I trust what Jesus did for, for me. I believe that. I believe that was for me. Today, I want to point you to the cross and encourage you to believe. Father, would you do that? I believe you can open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth about Jesus so that we can come to you, so that we can boldly approach and receive life. Thank you for the grace that's promised us through the work of not a snake in a pole, but the living Son of God, who's alive forevermore. We ask all this in his name. Amen.